Our church's leadership has selected the phrase passing the baton as our theme for 2024 here at Mission Covenant Church. This, of course, is due to the pastoral transition that we're facing in this next year due to my pending retirement in early 2025. And our desire is to have a seamless pastoral transition by hiring my replacement before I actually retire. And the goal is for me and this incoming pastor to work alongside each other as I gradually pass on more and more of the responsibilities of the lead pastor role until I'm completely out of the picture. The church's desire in using this approach is to not lose any momentum in ministry or members, which commonly happens in pastoral transitions, much more so when you have long-term pastorates. We also do not want to lose any financial support or focus upon missions itself, which is why we've chosen this route. As many of you already know, Pastor James Walsh is being recommended to our annual membership meeting in two weeks for our church members to affirm in order for us to follow through on this vision. It is our sincere prayer and hope that our entire church family will get behind this process as we strive for a smooth passing of the baton to our next lead pastor. We recognize that this is going to be hard to replace a long-term, much-beloved pastor of 37 years, one who is a child of this church, who is brought to this church uh, from an unchurched family in this community when he was 13 years of age. This means a 52-year relationship with yours truly. Please know that in this process that I have pledged to our church, I pledge to our church's leadership and to our next incoming lead pastor that I will do everything I can according to the grace of God that is at work within me to do what I'm able to to prepare the incoming pastor to lead and serve well. In other words, I want to make an excellent pass of the baton. And by the way, this approach is extremely biblical. We see this occurring numerous times in the scriptures from Moses to Joshua, Elijah to Elijah and from Paul to Timothy. In fact, we're going to be actually doing a sermon series in February, the latter half of February and March, leading up to Passion Week on these biblical examples of seamless pastoral transitions. This is also why we're beginning a six-week sermon series today in 2 Timothy, and this is Paul's final work. These are his final words. He's passing on the mantle of leadership for the oversight of the churches that have been planted and established to young Timothy. And he's facing his own martyrdom, which he knows is happening and happening pretty soon. And we're calling this series Final Words of Guidance. And I'm going to encourage you this week to read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. Read the latter part of this and you'll get a better picture of this. But before we go any further, let's take a few moments and talk about the importance of good baton passes in the sport of track and field. I've had the privilege of running on relays in my in eight of the ten years that I competed uh, in track and field, in junior high, high school, and even two years of college. I've also coached relays for 27 years. And we, when I begin working with athletes, uh, one of the things I usually do right away is do this. And then I tell them, that is a sound we never want to hear. 
First thing I teach them, uh, we do not want to miss an exchange completely and drop a baton. And the key to a relay is getting the baton around the track. It's the baton that goes around the track as fast as possible through a team of runners. In the 4x1 and the 4x200 meter relays, this means making blind exchanges where the pass happens where the runner is looking ahead. Isn't looking back. Uh, anytime you look back, you shorten your stride. So to do a blind exchange at wide open speed, that's what the goal is. And you do that in a 30 meter exchange zone. Now to do this, one of the goals is to keep the baton in the middle of the track because the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And to do this, we alternate hands. The first runner will run with it in their right hand. They'll pass it to the runner in their left hand. They will then pass it to the runner in their right hand who will pass it to the final runner in their left hand. And there's reasoning for this. The first runner runs the corner in the 4x1 able to use the baton because they get a slightly more arm action to keep themselves close to the line going around the corner. The second runner lines up on the outside of the lane so their feet don't get tangled together when the exchange is made. Literally the inside runner could run past the outside runner in the same lane. It'll allows that to happen. They don't get tangled up. Then the third runner lines up on the inside of the lane with the runner coming down the straightaway on the outside of the lane. Then they run the corner that way and the same thing on the straightaway. The fourth runner runs on the outside of the lane while the other runner is coming around the corner tight to the corner. And uh, we only practice handoffs at the early part of practice when runners are fresh because it's an explosive activity. It's an anaerobic activity, meaning it's a closed system. You can't take in enough oxygen to, uh, to uh, you know, replace what you've lost when you do an explosive activity like that. So you really can only do about three good handoffs, and then you need a long period of recovery. And so we try to do that really well and do it in a short, abbreviated, compressed time. In a couple minutes, we're going to be watching uh, the finals from the World Track and Field Championships last year in the 4x100 meter. And you're going to see some runners using a three-point stance where they're down like this and looking back or some will even look between their legs looking for the mark to go. Others will be standing in a running stride position looking back with their drive leg being their forward leg so they can get going faster. I don't teach that to high school athletes because it's too hard to miss your mark. I teach them to have loaded quads like this and to be looking and it may mean that their, their, their mark is four or five feet further back, but when runners are borne by on both sides in their staggered lanes, it's so easy to get confused and see somebody else's foot that you're going off of. And when that runner hits your mark, that's when you take off, driving accelerating as fast as you can. And the reason I do that is the number one thing that high school athletes lack is confidence. And I want to instill confidence in them every chance I get. And I teach them to never move until they're in coming runner hits the mark. It isn't always the fastest team that wins. The most disciplined team is the team that usually wins. And I teach them that over and over again. We also teach them not to ever look back. It's so easy to want to feel secure and look back. But in a blind exchange, that's, that slows you up. Every time you do an activity like that, you've shortened your stride. And we don't want to ever shorten our stride. Sometimes the runner will get the baton 
and they won't have it in a good position to pass it. And you'll even see, I think, on the video, someone does that. Well, I've watched races many times where someone does that, and the baton goes flying. Or, or you'll see people grab it with their other hand. And all those things shorten up your stride, and you've lost multiple feet. We don't teach that. We teach that they can actually move it in their hand very carefully. So if you get the baton like this, and you're running... You can adjust it, and you're already right, ready to go to make the next exchange, and you haven't shortened your stride one little bit. And to teach them to hold the baton firmly, but to have relaxed hands, sometimes I have them run with potato chips in their hands. And, of course, the kids like to not break the potato chips because the reward at the end is they get to eat them. Okay, but, but, but you teach that relaxed running where even if they get the baton wrong, they can still have it where they need it at the end. The challenge is matching incoming velocity, which is a runner's top speed, with someone's acceleration and transition into top speed in a 30-meter zone. That's the challenge of making good handoffs. Well, with this in mind, we're going to look at this short clip here in a minute. But to set it up, I just want you to know this is from last year, and I always enjoy watching the Olympics. I always enjoy watching the World Track and Field Championships. But I also want you to understand that it's usually pretty painful for me to do that because you see so many of the bad handoffs and the bad habits that these international competitors have. And in defense of the United States, they don't always win the four by one when they should win it literally just about every year. They don't always win it because they have poor exchanges many times and they have exchanges that get disqualified because they go out of the exchange zones. And that's painful for me to watch. But in their defense, many times they only get together two to three weeks before these international competitions so they don't get to train a lot doing them and they also uh, um, are so fast. I, I personally think that they need a longer exchange zone. I think at international competition like that uh, they should have a 40 meter exchange zone because they're so fast that they're trying to thread a needle. Uh, in fact many world class sprinters don't even get to velocity, they don't even get to top speed until they're 60 meters into a race. It's like then they shift into overdrive and then then they really go and uh, it's difficult for them to make good exchanges now Japan on the other hand is more antiquated in their baton passes they use an underhand pass this is what used to happen until the 1960s and early 1970s where they would pass it underhand to the next runner like that so Japan hasn't kept up with what the rest of the world is doing but their team works at it very hard in preparation and and, and I should say this too, rarely does Japan ever have a sprinter that makes the finals in the 100 meter. Many times the U.S. has two or three. Last year, I think they had four make the 100-meter final. They should win this race hands down because of that. But Japan is usually in the hunt. And many times they're in the final without having the best relays in the world and or without having the best sprinters in the world and without even doing the most modern handoffs. But they do it so well because they do it as a team. Let's take a look. So we kind of expect a bit of showbiz here, Michael Johnson. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these these guys love this. It's the end of the championships. You got the individual guys coming together for the relay. Some of these teams specialize in the relay. The Jamaican team, not as strong as it has been in the past, but they will certainly want to contend with these guys in the U.S., which are very strong. They've got Noah Lyles on that anchor leg. Christian Coleman, a previous world champion on there as well, will be a strong team. They've been trying to figure out this baton exchange thing that has caused them so much trouble over the years. Uh, Noah Lyles there, I was just saying, looking for the third goal. Yeah, looking for the third goal. He loves to be out here. He loves Jeanette was asking me earlier when we were coming over here to the stadium. She said, you think, you know, Noah's going to run? And I was like, Noah will run if they allow him to. He wants to be out here. He loves to be in front of this crowd, loves to be out here on show, and certainly wants to be a part of this team. This is that one opportunity as an individual athlete. You get to be part of a team, and it's a completely different dynamic, a completely different mindset. And the individual athletes in this sport, you really get into this, working with others and someone depending on you, and you have to depend on them. But it's also the bragging rights, isn't it? Who is the fastest? You think the United States, with the caliber of athletes that they have, they're going to want to get the job done and get it done in style. On your marks. That was quick. The Italians won't be far away here. They are the quickest team in the world this year. So Italy in lane five, outside Great Britain. Great Britain are in four, and I think all of the lanes outside of them are where we should watch. Jamaica in six, South Africa in seven, United States in eight, Japan also will contend in lane nine on the inside France and Brazil men's four by 100 relay Tazu takes it away for Great Britain Coleman has already stormed out. He's going to give it to Curly down the back straight. The Italians are right up there as well. Jacobs has got it. Curly's got the baton. So is on Al Hughes, though. The big names down the back straight. Who's going to come out on top? The United States are still leading. Curly hands that off. Italy are right up there. Jamaica are there, and so are Great Britain. This is going to go all the way to the wire, but it is no allows on the last leg for Great Britain. Amadanzi dropped the baton for Britain. Italy are right up there. No allows is moving away. The Italians are coming through. It's going to be tied on the line. USA get the gold. Italy the silver. Jamaica the bronze. 37-38. No allows. But I don't think anybody made any mistakes really. That was a bit of a rough one for the United States. That was on the top uh, with uh, Curley, but they did get it through safely. And. Uh, that was happened yesterday, didn't it? I think it was the same change yesterday. It was only the only change the US made was Khan stayed in and uh, Lyles came in on the last leg. So that was a dodgy change yesterday. That's not the best, but they've got such good leg speed. Yeah, I mean, that was clear once you got the foot speed that the United States have. So we kind of expect a bit of showbiz here, Michael Jordan. The Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his life and this is the end of his ministry. And he wants to make a smooth handoff to young Timothy. While observing this today, we need to keep in mind that transferring the faith from one generation to another generation has always been important to the church. And this became extremely important to Paul in light of his impending martyrdom. 
And uh, this involved, he understood that this involved picking a good pastor to carry on the work of the gospel by leading the way. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul says, An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ. And I want you to notice when you read through 2 Timothy, you will see him say Christ over and over again. And I apologize, Pastor Sam read it backwards this morning because he's doing it for emphasis. Christ Jesus mentioning his title and his authority and that has been entrusted to Paul as an apostle as well as a close relationship with Jesus and all others who are in Christ Jesus as Paul says. So he has the authority to say what he's going to say. Verses 2 through 4 he says to Timothy my dear son grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Now, unfortunately, in verse 3, where it says the word serve there, it isn't easily translated into the English language. The word that we generally think of is the word diakoneo. It's where we get the word deacon from. But it's actually the Greek word latruo, and it means to worship. That's the word that's used in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is our pleasing act of worship. It's that word Latruo, and it's trying to capture Paul's love for God, Paul's worship of God, and Paul's service to God. They're all one and the same. They're tied together, and he's so thankful in this verse for his background, his Jewish upbringing, which he believes is foundational to his faith. Now, my wife Cindy didn't come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord of her life until she was going into her senior year of college, and she was brought up attending church regularly and being confirmed in a more conservative mainline church. In it, she learned about Jesus and many of the stories in the Bible that one is even justified by faith, but she never learned that it was a personal faith, that Christ needed to be received into one's life. And when she came to Christ, uh, she was frustrated that she never heard the gospel before that, but she was also grateful at the same time that she had this background and this, this uh, knowledge of the Bible. Well, Timothy's mother was Jewish and his father was Greek, so early in Timothy's ministry as an uncircumcised, unorthodox Jew, he would have been considered an apostate Jew, meaning an unbelieving Jew. To the Gentiles from his father's side of the fence, he was considered a Jew, even though he didn't practice all the tenets of Judaism. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, my ministry and what I'm doing now and endorsing you is being done with a clear conscience. And he earlier, in three chapters earlier, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when he was talking about the qualifications for elders, he said in verse 9 that they must hold to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul, whose circumstances are difficult right now, he's in prison, he's near the end of his life, he's going to be martyred, and he knows it, and he shares the deep affection that he has for Timothy. In verse 2, he calls him his dear son. That's different than what he said in chapter 1 of, of 1 Timothy. And he also uses the word mercy, which is the word for compassion, about his love for him. And then he says that he's continually praying for him. I understand in a way what Paul is saying. I've not had all of Paul's hardships 
all of Paul's experiences, but I have walked the same pastoral path, and I'm actually the very same age right now as what many historians believe the Apostle Paul was when he was beheaded by Nero. Nero. And he also was a tent maker for, for a good portion of his ministry. I have poured a lot of concrete as a cement finisher in my lifetime. I did it for 35 years. Every inch of this building, along with some other men in our church, we poured and finished and put in frost footings and, and frost walls and all of that. I did the same thing for Biwabic Covenant Church after an arsonist burnt their church down uh, up there and did the same thing at Prairie Hills Covenant Church in, in New Richmond, Wisconsin. Not to mention for two decades poured all the concrete and led the teams to pour the concrete at Covenant Park Bible Camp. And we even did a couple of big pours up at uh, uh, Adventurous Christians Bible Camp, our Wilderness Bible Camp. And then not to mention helping so many people out around here uh, pouring basements and slabs and patios and driveways and aprons and, and all the garage slabs and all of that. Along the way, physically, I faced some challenges. Had a brain tumor removed four years ago with a titanium plate now in my skull. Because of a worn out disc in my back, I had a titanium cage put in my back with a titanium bolt to fuse uh, my lower spine. There was a time when I couldn't even hold up a communion tray to serve communion because it was so painful. I've had two hernia repairs. I've had a knee surgery. Uh, I'm headed for a knee replacement on my left knee, but they actually are going to operate on this shoulder uh, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. I covet your prayers for that. I've already had this shoulder operated on during the same time. Uh, I've, I've had all kinds of painful things. I've had shingles while I've been in the ministry. I've had COVID twice. I've had Lyme's disease. I've got arthritis ravaging my body. I've got hypertension. Last Sunday it was so bad that my, my head felt like it was going to explode when I was preaching because my blood pressure was so high. They had to change up my medicines for a third time just trying to get my blood pressure down enough to be able to have surgery tomorrow. So physically, physically, it's been very hard for me to keep on doing ministry. And also understand a little bit of Paul because I have a son who's on staff here. And his mother and I, as well as his siblings, are very proud of him. And he brings so much honor to our family. And Pastor James, whom I've had served with for 25 years now, feels like another son to me. And uh, as I've been able to coach and mentor him in ministry, and this is really saying a lot because Pastor James is absolutely Absolutely brilliant. I've learned a lot from him over the years. And when I face challenging things in the pastorate, uh, either in the church or in the denominational level, he's always been eager to do some research for me to help me out. And so many times he's given me sage advice that has made me look better than Daryl Nelson truly is. And I'm going to miss working so closely with Pastor James, just as I miss working closely with, with Pastor Kerry Vick. But let me tell you, I am so proud of Pastor James and so proud of what he's become come, especially from where he came. And I have told Pastor James this, and I've also told him that I'll continue to pray and support him in his future ministry. Well, it goes on in verse 4 here to say, recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy's had this upbringing uh, that a 
afforded him well for heading into the ministry because he had a faithful praying mother and grandmother. And keep in mind here that this was a personal letter to Timothy. This wasn't a letter originally to the church. It was to Timothy. And many scholars believe that it was a while down the road before the, he ever shared this letter with the rest of the church. So take a moment right now and imagine with me how Timothy would have felt when he read these words of Paul's again, reread them after Paul's death. See, many believe he was in Rome and may have witnessed Paul's beheading. And church tradition teaches that Paul was 63 years of age when he was beheaded by one of the executioners with an axe on a chopping block with Nero watching it take place. Paul's life, his work, his death, his writings, all confirm that moving the needle forward in the church, continuing the work of the gospel, involves picking good pastors to carry on the work by leading the way. And in chapter 2 that we just read a few moments ago, Paul circles back to this very subject with Timothy by challenging him to be devoted to the work of being a pastor. And this means being loyal to the gospel. Let me tell you, in our day and age, it's acceptable to be loyal and devoted to everything else in the world but the gospel. You can throw yourself into pleasure. You can throw yourself into your sexuality. You can devote yourself to politics or look to big brother, the government, to take care of you. You can devote yourself to money or to this philosophy or that philosophy, but there's no time in this world for Christian truth or for the gospel. In verses 1 and 2, he says this, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. You, Timothy, are being entrusted with a stewardship that needs to be carried on. It needs to be maintained. Teach others. And i got to tell you, the number one thing most people think of when they think about Pastor James is how faithfully he teaches the Word of God and the deep, profound truths of God. For someone who is truly a scholar, a theologian, and many times the smartest person in the room, yet he can make things so practical. He can make profound biblical truths easy to understand. And this is God's treasure that our next lead pastor needs to carry on. Verse 3 goes on to say, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers give up a lot. For others, they endure in order to be ready to stand up and defend their countries. And a soldier who only thinks of themselves is a disloyal soldier, is a soldier who's undependable, is a soldier who has no honor. Verse 4 goes on. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. In ministry, one cannot get caught up in the things of the world. We can't react or, 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 or overreact to them. The goal is always to please the Lord. And as a pastor, all pastors, pastors want to be liked. And you know, there are simply times when you cannot be liked if you're serving the Lord. And that is advice I give younger pastors from time to time. 
I can recall the late Stuart Briscoe, uh, who pastored the megachurch in Elmbrook, uh, Elmbrook Church in Waukesha, Wisconsin. He would speak at our chapels many times uh, when I was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and it was always nice to hear his wonderful English accent as a native Englander. He came from England to pastor that church and stayed there, you know, 40 years or so. And he said this, if you want to be in ministry, you need the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. It's true. It's true. This shoulder is injured from the worship wars in 1992, and this knee it buckles from getting kicked in the rump so many times, and I could go on and on. But ministry isn't for the faint of heart, which is why. You need to soldier on, Timothy. Verse 5, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Timothy, you have to do ministry the right way. You need to play by the rules. No bending the rules, no fudging here or fudging there. Integrity and character matter, and no athlete competes in the games. That's talking about the games in the Roman, Greco-Roman world. In fact, you had to... Basically, swear an oath that you had trained for over 30 days or you weren't allowed into their ancient competitions. And then you had to agree that you would abide by the rules. I have to tell you, I learned this very important lesson as a young child from my Grandpa Johnson on my mother's side. My Grandpa Johnson was a world-class horseshoe pitcher. One time he won the senior adult world championships in horseshoe. He won many state titles in the state of Minnesota. He's in the Horseshoe Pitchers Hall of Fame. Uh, as a promoter because of his accomplishments. They have a, a horseshoe court named after him in his hometown with a, a signia uh, of him winning the world title. And uh, he, horseshoes place 50 shoes in a game. If you end up tied, then you throw four shoes extra. And if you're tied, then you throw four shoes extra, that sort of thing. He had many perfect games, 50 consecutive ringers. I never witnessed one of those. The most I ever saw him throw in one time was 44 consecutive, then he missed two of the next six. So he only ended up with 48 out of 50 shoes that were ringers. And if you've heard that saying that horseshoe, that uh, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, that's false. If you played my grandpa, it better be around the stake or it doesn't count at all. But what would really upset him is when he would be in competition and someone would try to cheat. Now they threw their shoes into blue clay, but if someone would come up and try to nudge their shoe a little bit when they were going to pick it up, or if someone would click their shoes together like they're cleaning them off when their opponent is throwing, or would they be talking to someone or muttering under their breath, or any kind of distractive thing, he would call an official, or he'd call a scorekeeper, to come over and mediate that. He never minded losing. He never, he was the most gracious person to lose as long as he knew he did his best. But he didn't like those who didn't play by the rules. Timothy, pastors out there, you're the people for the job. But you have to make sure that you play by the rules. Verses 6 and 7. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give insight, you insight into this. Farmers work hard. 
to bring in their harvest. And yet the farmer doesn't usually do all the work themselves. There are family members that help out. There are sometimes are farmhands that are hired. There are even from time to time contractors that might do parts or bring in ammonia or bring in fertilizer or other things. Many share the responsibilities, yet the hardworking farmer, the one who gets everything going, the one who oversees everything, and it's saying here, should be the first to be compensated. This is speaking to the church, that churches need to compensate their pastors. And I am so grateful for Mission Covenant Church, that Mission Covenant Church loved me when I was a little rabble-rouser junior high school student who was notorious for disrupting worship services. I wonder how many church leadership meetings I got talked about when I was a little kid and disrupting our worship services. They then called me back to, uh, after I came to Christ and went to college and went to seminary, to come back here and pastor. And they loved me. They loved my wife, Cindy. They've loved each of my children. Now two of our four children are back and are serving in the church. And we've got a sixth grandchild that might be part of this church here as well. And their respective families here. And wow, has this church taken care of us. Well, something you may not know is we actually candidated at a different church before we came to this church. And, and we were taught in seminary, if you're called by one church ahead of another church, that you follow that call unless God shows you something otherwise along the way. And we were called one day before at that church than this church called us to come and candidate. And we had a daughter with disability issues who this church was 80 miles from Madison and they had the specialists in that field that our daughter needed for her health care. They didn't have any pediatric neurologists in the Twin Ports at that time. So it seemed like God was leading us in a different direction. But there were many things wrong with accepting that other call. Not to mention I would have been the seventh pastor in 14 years to serve in that church. Uh, they had defied the superintendent and they defied the seminary and how they did their selection process on through the list. But we got to the end of the candidating weekend and it came time for them to offer a salary package. And they wanted to pay us less than what we were patching together with part-time jobs to go to seminary. And I told them we can't do that. And of course, they're willing to negotiate right there. would throw a few more dollars on the table. But it was clear that they didn't really care well for their pastors. And the, the search committee alone, there was an attorney on there. And I could go through all their professions. They were wealthy. And they could have easily doubled that salary with their own ties alone. But they didn't want to do that. Didn't care. And we came to this church, which was much poorer and we were offered $8,000 more at this church, and we were given the apology. We wish we could do more for you, Daryl. We wish we could do more. This church cares for its pastors, and that's part of the secret sauce of Mission Covenant Church. And my encouragement to you is to keep doing it. And pastors, periodically remind the church of this responsibility because what is at stake is the work of the gospel. What is at stake is stewarding the trust that's been handed down all these years. What is at stake is leaders soldiering on in the hard times. What is at stake is playing by the rules and honoring the hard work that goes into all of that. We're talking about passing on the work of the gospel by picking good pastors who will remain loyal to the gospel. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.